Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay. And today is another chatty episode. I'm just in a pretty good mood right now because I paused right before I said right now because I don't want to be too presumptuous. I don't want to jinx myself. But as of the last 48 hours, I've been in a pretty good mood. I went out yesterday and the sun was shining, I was sitting in the park, I was reading my book, I was wearing a linen dress, I was drinking a matcha latte, the mood was right, the vibes were right, I felt like I was in a Studio Ghibli movie, and even though the book I was reading was pretty depressing, you know, I I was smiling through it. Um, And the book I was reading was The Poppy War, of course, which I have been posting about on Instagram, or I I did until I finished it. Um, It was a really good book if you're interested in the whole, like, military war fantasy genre, then you'll definitely like it. It is very graphic, very violent, but um, a fast-paced read, and it's one of three, so I have to pick up the other two books. Uh, And the authors are of Quang, Arv Kwong. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she is a phenomenal writer. And I read Babel, which is another book that she wrote. And it's like a dark academia fantasy that's also like ties in colonialism. Um, And yeah, I think she is a very smart woman in that especially Babel was incredibly smart because it's about linguistics students. And so she brings in linguistics into the book. And yeah, your brain just feels like it's growing bigger as you read it so I highly recommend her work she's also coming oh my god I feel like I'm plugging her so hard I'm like RF Rebecca um do you want to hire me as your publicist but she's coming out with a new book this month that I'm really excited to read it's called Yellow Face I read a lot of like books written by Asian authors and books with Asian protagonists because you know now the tide is changing with Hollywood and I'm I'm seeing Asian faces on the big screen um but for a long time that wasn't the case and so I just got into the snack of reading about Asians because that was like where I was able to seek out my representation and now it's just a habit and also because a lot of Asian authors are really good writers so yeah the weather has been super super good it's made every reading experience I've had great and if you don't read outside I highly recommend reading outside I feel like that is just one of those suggestions that is equivalent to just drink more water and you'll be happy but for me it's really worked (laughs) anyways I brought up the weather because now that it's getting warmer it's like We're feeding into hot girl summer. And so people are back in the dating scene. And I have been in a relationship since 2019. So I've been in a relationship for four years now. And I met my boyfriend on Tinder, which now when I tell people that, like they're all like, what? Because Tinder is really not it anymore. Back in 2019, I feel like that was the last year that Tinder was really off the ground before it got completely taken over by Hinge. Hinge is now I feel like the the app that people make relationships on. I think people use Tinder just to hook up now. But yeah, Hinge is the new one, relatively new one. Raya is also major in New York City. If you don't know what Raya is, it's like membership only. Like you have to be accepted because you have to be in the industry. So honestly, like I have friends who are on Raya who are not in the entertainment industry, which is what I thought, like, 
was the whole point of Raya. So I don't know if they've changed that. But the thing with Raya is you have to pay. Like you have to pay a membership fee. And I just think that's the silliest thing ever and I would never do it because like, I don't know, like I, I was on dating apps before I met my boyfriend. Like obviously that's how I met him. So I was on there. And I never was someone who went on a lot of dates because I'm someone who doesn't like dating. And granted, I feel like dating in your early 20s is not a good experience. And I don't know, my friends who are single and dating now have also agreed with this. But when you're in your early 20s and if you're dating people who are also in their early 20s, like no one knows what they want. And so that makes it really frustrating because I would go on a date with someone and I'm looking for a relationship. I've always been kind of a relationship girly. I wish I had that moment in my life where I just wanted to date around and explore what was out there, but I'm someone who has a one-track mind. And if I meet someone and I like them, then I want to just hang out with them. Like I don't want to go on any more dates with other people. Like I could never be on The Bachelorette because I would know for sure who I wanted to leave the show with. Like I have never liked multiple people at the same time equally. Like I thought multiple people are attractive, but my eyes have always been set on one person. And that's why I have always dated with the intention of being in a relationship. And I feel like when I was dating in my late teens and early 20s, there were way more people in my dating pool who did not have that same kind of dating philosophy. And that's totally fair. Like I think when you're young, and I mean, I consider myself still young. Like I think all throughout your 20s, it's totally fair. Even in your 30s, honestly, it's just fair to want to keep exploring and to not be the type of person who wants to settle down. But my problem is a lot of people in their early 20s are like that, but don't know they're like that or they're like in denial about it. And so they won't tell you what they actually want. And that would always piss me off because I'm like, why can't we just be frank with our expectations? I am looking for this. If you are not looking for this, then tell me you are not looking for this. I don't know. I speak like I have been in a lot of bad dating experiences. I really haven't. I'm also the type of person who just didn't date um, because I felt like people would let me down. So I just felt like it was not a good use of my time. And I don't know. I really lucked out with my boyfriend because he was the first person I went on a date with in New York. I had only been here for about a week. I decided to just see what the dating scene was like. I opened up Tinder, which I hadn't opened in months, and I agreed to go on this date, and then I really liked him from the first date. And actually, at the end of the first date, I was like, so do you want to go on a second date? And also, what are your expectations? Like, because I'm not someone who wants to waste my time, and I don't want to waste your time. And thankfully, he was chill with that. Like, I've also talked to people and I've explained how I went about it and they were like, yeah, that would scare me. And I'm just like grateful in that sense that my boyfriend is not an avoidant type of person. But at the same time, if he was, then we wouldn't be right for each other because yeah, I'm someone who's very like straightforward and I would want someone who appreciates that and or is straightforward themselves. So yeah, why did I do that overshare? Oh, just to preface that I'm not in the dating scene, but I do love hearing about it and reading about it. And I came across this article that was published in ID and it was called The Rise of Dating Vigilantism. And this is something that I think is so interesting and something that I actually have a lot of problems with. 
So the idea of dating vigilantism is putting someone on blast on social media because of some weird interaction you have with them in a dating context. So for example, last month, this one tweet blew up quite a lot. It was a screenshot this girl posted. Her name is Clark. She posted a screenshot of her conversation with a man on Hinge. And if you're not familiar with Hinge's interface, Hinge offers you prompts and you choose which prompt you want to answer and then those answered prompts go onto your dating profile and people who are interested in you can reply to a specific prompt that you answered that is on your dating profile. Does that make sense? So one of the prompts that she chose was the best way to ask me out is by blank and she answered that prompt with opening with a time and place. Let's save the small talk for dinner. So this guy who was interested in her replied to that prompt with 7.30 drinks next Thursday at 456 in East Williamsburg. She replied to him saying, I'll bet $100 that bar is down the street from your apartment in Williamsburg and you didn't give any consideration to the fact that I live on the west side of Manhattan. Yawning emoji. And then he replied saying, you'd win $100 on the first part, but I took that all into consideration. I figured you probably don't come out to East Williamsburg too often. Next Thursday is going to be gorgeous and this bar has a nice outdoor section. So she posted that screenshot, that interaction on Twitter with the caption. He really thought he ate that F for effort in asking me to travel an hour to have a drink with you at a place two blocks from your home. Drinks is so he can spend less money, but it's nighttime so he can ask me back to his place after. And as if Manhattan doesn't have patios. The ID article considers this dating vigilantism, which they define as people using technology to survey each other's behavior while transforming personal and romantic lives into a public spectacle. And yeah, this tweet got a lot of mixed responses. My personal opinion is I do think she was a little rash with her assumptions on his character because, look, she literally said in her prompt, open with a time and place. And he did. He replied to that. So he definitely read everything that she said. And I think offering to go for drinks on a first date is very fine. And I don't know, she is saying that he only offered drinks because it costs less. But I don't, I mean... Okay, this is like a whole nother topic of just a lot of people in New York only wanting to date rich people, which I think is, that's a whole nother topic, right? Like, I don't want to dive into that. Personally, I think it's icky to want to date someone because of their income level or their class status. But I also recognize that there has been a study, I think, that says like one of the major reasons for a couple breaking up is because of class differences so I don't know again I don't want to get into that but I don't think it's so crazy that he suggested a place that's nearby him because it's probably a place that he's been to before and he likes and therefore is comfortable asking someone to go on a date with because you don't want to invite someone to a place that's going to be a bust right and maybe that just like shows his personality like he's someone that is a more secure person versus someone who's more spontaneous and that's okay to want something more spontaneous and more interesting for a first date, but I don't think he did anything wrong or lazy by offering a date idea that's on the safe side, especially when you don't know anything about this person, right? Like, this is a first date. Um, Though I do think he kind of 
lied. I mean, I don't know this person, right? But I think he probably exaggerated with being like, oh, I did take the fact that you live in Manhattan in consideration. And I just thought that you would want to go to East Williamsburg. Like, I think that was an excuse. I don't think he thought that far. And I think he just liked this place again. And he suggested it. And he was just trying to cover his tracks to make him seem more considerate. But, you know, again, I don't think any of this is a red flag. And I think that people who jumped on him and said, these are all red flags and like who really agreed with this poster. I understand why they would, because I think it's a product of just going on a lot of bad dates. Like I don't think you come to a chat with this level of cynicism unless you've gone on some really shitty dates. But I also don't think that it's necessarily fair to judge someone based on one text that they sent. And the article mentions this just as an example of an act of dating vigilantism, but it actually focuses more on the idea of dating vigilantism, not just like who was right and who was wrong in this particular instance. And it's interesting because I've definitely noticed this and I've definitely engaged with it because I remember like a couple years ago when Hinge first started launching the voice feature, I thought it was so funny because... I wasn't on Hinge, but then people would post on TikTok like examples of other people's voice notes that they would leave on Hinge. And some of them were just really, really funny. But then at the same time, I'm like, I feel like that's a breach of privacy. And sure, you can say that these apps are public, but when you post them on TikTok or Twitter or any other platform, you're expanding its reach and you're making it so that millions of people are able to access this person's profile when in their mind, when they're posting this, it's only people within their local community. And then of course, people stitch it, they take screenshots of the screenshots and it just immortalizes these people's messages and these people's profiles. And I feel like it's just not very fair and it feels like it's too much surveillance and it's scary in that sense. And I understand why people would want to. Like I myself, when I was on Tinder, before I started dating my boyfriend, I would send profiles to my friends in our group chats all the time. Like we would send them to each other. Anytime we came across something that was like really out of pocket. I remember like there was this one guy on Tinder who really used it as if it was like a BDSM service (laughs) because he just like listed out all of his kinks Like his profile picture was just like a torso shot of him wearing a tie. And it was just so strange and bizarre. And I was like, I think you are on the wrong platform, sir. I don't know. Maybe Tinder is like that for some people, but it wasn't for me. And that's why I was was caught off guard and I would send it to my friends and would have a little laugh about it. Or, you know, a guy would send me a kind of weird message and I would send it to my friends and we would laugh about it. And it would be something that was contained within our group chat and I'm not saying it was always nice like it was definitely mean for a lot of what we said to each other but it was contained so it didn't get back to this other person ever because I don't even remember those people and all these instances existed in like a little blip in our message history and the reason we shared these profiles and these messages was to commiserate over the fact that dating apps suck a lot of the times and that there are actually not a lot of great fish in the sea. (laughs) And yeah, it was just a commiserating experience, as I said, to make the experience of dating more fun for us. But 
I think when people put it onto social media for way more people to see, that's what they are wanting. Like they're wanting that commiserating experience. They want that validation of people seeing and agreeing with them over what they have to go through in this society. But I think it ends up being really dangerous and really irresponsible because a lot of these, and usually these are guys who get put on blast, a lot of these guys do get doxxed, which is not good and very dangerous. That's actually what happened to West Elm Caleb. Okay, so the thing with West Elm Caleb, if you don't know what that is, it is a nickname for a man named Caleb who existed in the New York City dating scene. He was a furniture designer, hence the nickname dub West Elm. And he had a history of love bombing and ghosting various women in New York. And it started with this one woman who posted her experience about it. And then slowly other people were like, wait, this was the exact same experience I had. And it blew up into this big thing. And then the actual Caleb got doxxed and he had to delete all of his social media. As far as I know, he hasn't been on social media since, at least under his real name, which was fully doxxed. So I'm not saying that he's necessarily a great person for doing all those things. And I definitely feel for a lot of those women, having been someone who has gone on some terrible dates with men, I understand. Like a lot of men truly, truly suck. And it does feel a little bit good to see them put in their place. But when it comes to doxing, I do feel like it is just extremely unsafe. It's one of those things where the punishment does not fit the crime. And at the end of the day, Caleb is one dude, right? Like... He is not the first and he is not the only man to make Spotify playlists for someone and then just completely ghost them. And whatever is wrong with him, that is on him and that's something for him to go through. It is not something for everyone on the internet to also go through. And a lot of this dating vigilantism is people who are so far removed from these specific people's dating lives feeling personally victimized by a person in this situation and then going after them themselves as if this person specifically did something to you. This is also what happened with this uh, one TikToker. She posted a TikTok. This is not dating related, but this one girl, she posted a TikTok of her at a baseball game. And in the TikTok video, there were two girls in the back who were making fun of her taking selfies. And she pointed them out in her little video. And that video went viral. And those two girls ended up getting doxxed. One of the girl's boyfriends actually was even found out. And his family members were harassed. So the justice pipeline, it doesn't even focus on just the perpetrators. Like it goes to people's family members or just people who are somehow connected to these people. And I don't know. This became a really big discourse topic on my timeline. Like some people commented on it. They were like, well, you know, they really should have thought about that before they decided to bully this girl because everything you do can be recorded. Meanwhile, I'm thinking like, but should we all feel that way? Like, should we all feel like at everything we do can be recorded? Should we feel like we're living in a panopticon that we're in jail like we're in a surveillance state, like Big Brother is always watching. I don't think that's necessarily something that we should promote. This idea of constantly filming other people or constantly feeling like you're going to be filmed by someone else. I do think it's an infringement 
on your own rights. But I don't know. Like, again, I think those girls, they were mean. But I think the punishment was really disproportional to what they did. And I think a lot of people who dug up those girls' informations, like, they were coming from a place of pain where they saw these girls as bullies. And maybe they thought of their own situations having been bullied and they felt like this was a moment for them to tear down the system because these two girls represented that system. Just like how West Elm Caleb represents all the shady, annoying men out in the New York dating scene. They become representations for these systems. And so tearing down these individual people feels like you're doing something much larger than what you're actually doing, which is just ruining someone's life, like an individual person. And, you know, I've thought about my own role in this because there were people who were like, she should have just turned around and said something to those two girls instead of just pretending like nothing was wrong and then putting them on blast on social media. Like, it blew way out of proportion when if she just said something, then the whole issue could have been squashed immediately. And I also understand that it takes a lot of bravery to be able to stand up to multiple people if you're one person to stand up to multiple people especially and be like what you did is mean and it hurt my feelings that takes a lot of courage that a lot of people do not have and therefore it's much easier for them to just passively take it and then vent about it on social media but I do think it's better to actually just fix the situation in person (laughs) And I don't want to speak for this one TikToker because I don't know who anything about her. I don't know the kind of person she is. I, I can't make assumptions about her. But as someone who's been in not necessarily the same situation, but in a situation where I didn't come to talk to a person who made mean statements about me and instead put them on blast on my Instagram story and watched that person get torn down that made me feel really really gross and it also took me a while to understand that I really should have just said something to them directly and privately rather than relying on vigilantism on social media to fight my battles for me so just for the context for what happened this was like last summer I was in France for vacation and I was actually in the Musée d'Orsay And I was having a really great day and then I opened up my Instagram and someone sent me this article that this girl wrote about me for her Substack. She was a small writer, but she had published this one essay about me that was really mean and it really hurt my feelings. And in it, she just like made all these like character assassinations about me saying she didn't like anything that I put out and like you know, making a lot of judgments that hit very deep. It wasn't just about my content. It was about me, which I I saw read like when I read this thing. And I posted it on my story just like as a snap. No thought process went into it. I just put it on my story because I was so pissed off and I needed validation from other people. I wanted people to affirm me and to send me messages being like, this is wrong. I don't agree with it. But what I didn't think about was how people would come at her because this is like the first time that this has really happened to me. And also, it sounds silly, but I don't necessarily recognize how many people actually follow me on Instagram because it's a number. 
And it's sometimes hard to conceptualize a number and translate it into like real living people. But at the time, I think I had like a hundred something thousand followers. And so there was the potential for a hundred thousand something people to see this one article written about me. And I assume most of the people who followed me also like me and therefore would feel a certain way about this article. So I felt like shit for the rest of the day because of what this girl said. And I just turned off my phone because I was like, I can't like, I don't want to be on it. Like, I don't want to have to like see any of this anymore. Like, I'm just really upset. And so I left it alone. The next morning I woke up, went back on social media and I saw the damage that was caused where this girl like on her Instagram, she had received thousands of comments about people telling her to stop writing, quit writing, like she's a terrible writer, nothing she said makes sense, like she's a mean person, all these things that I imagine really stressed her out in the same way that she stressed me out. But this time it's like thousands of people, right? Like for me, it was just one person saying something really awful. But for her, it was like thousands of people saying something that was really awful. And it took me a long time to sit with because I had a lot of pride about it. I had a lot of ego about it where I felt like I'm just a regular person too. And what she said was really mean. And why is it that just because you have a platform, people are allowed to say whatever they want about you. Like they're allowed to just treat you like you're not a person. And I sat with that for a long time, a really, really long time, like months. (laughs) That thought process was circling in my head. And I just finally realized that this is the life that I chose for myself, right? Like I chose to be a public figure in some sense. Like I don't think of myself as big as a celebrity, but I do have a following and I do have a platform. And if I wanted anonymity and if I wanted no one to ever say anything negative about me, I wouldn't have chosen a career in social media. And this is just what comes with the territory. So nowadays I try to not Google myself. I I don't Google myself. I don't YouTube search myself. Like I don't wanna know if anyone has caused discourse about me. I don't look on Twitter finding if people have said things about me. My Twitter is actually private these days because I know personally what I can take and I don't want to be in a situation where I feel like I could potentially dox someone else because I feel so offended by what they said to me. And it's a hard line and I don't think I'm a perfect person at all by any means and it's something that I still struggle with. But... I do think it's like going to be for the better if we all just consider before we post on social media if an interaction that we felt we were on the shitty end of whether that could be fixed in a private message or on a one-on-one conversation and if even if it couldn't whether or not it's worth it to potentially ruin someone's life by posting it on TikTok or on Twitter like spaces that are known for harboring bloodthirsty people who love inciting their own sense of justice. So yeah, I mean, at the same time, I do think like it's valuable to post about sexual harassment or like Me Too related stuff and to share abusers in spaces if you know that they're still out there and to warn other, especially other women about this predator in the community. I think in that case, it's very valuable to post about someone on social media. But 
you know, in this article, they do mention that and they do mention like these Facebook groups that exist that are like called, are we dating the same guy where they do kind of operate as whisper networks sometimes, but a lot of the times in the end, they still get like inundated with screenshots of just cringy texts and funny profiles that can lead to doxing, even if they're more contained than on TikTok and on Twitter. But still, like as these Facebook groups grow in numbers, like it's still very possible to put someone in a very unsafe position just because they said something mildly weird in a conversation. Okay, lighter note, let's move to something lighter. <laughs> um, I also read this article in the cut that actually went viral, so I'm sure a lot of people have read it, but called Meet the People Working Three Jobs to Afford Air One. And I'm obsessed with this article. I think it's so funny. Like, it's sad because it's showing the state of society that is really sad, but it's also just so absurd that I find it funny. Basically, if you don't know what Air One is, it's this Los Angeles grocery store. It's super, super expensive. I have never been in an Air One because I live in New York and I don't know, I've, I've just never gone into one in the times that I've been to LA but it's apparently very very expensive there's actually this celebrity chef her name is chef bay on tiktok and she shared a couple videos of her going grocery shopping for her celebrity clients and I mean a lot of those trips are at Erwan. and in these videos some of the items that she's bought are $600 worth of steak, and by the way, $600 worth of steak at Erwan consists of three T-bone steaks. Three steaks for $600. Caviar, $500 for five servings. Truffles, $200 per ounce. Earth broth supplement from Health Force Superfoods, $50 for 16 ounces. Golden milk turmeric powder supplement from Aura Organic, $40 for 12.9 ounces. Macombo beans, $40 for 14 ounces, CMOS gel, $40 for 16 ounces, water from this brand called Ophora, $30 per gallon. And yeah, ju that's just to give you a sense of how expensive these groceries rack up to be. One thing that Erewhon is also known for is their smoothies. Like they have a smoothie bar and their smoothies start at $17, I believe which is just an insane price for a smoothie. I'm sorry, like I am someone who drinks a lot of smoothies. I love a smoothie moment. I will find an excuse to splurge on a smoothie, but $17 for a smoothie, okay? I feel like the price sweet spot for a smoothie is like 10 to $14. Anything below that, yeah, you can tell. I can tell if it's a $6 smoothie versus a $10 smoothie. But anything above $14, I'm like, you can taste the same exact thing for $14. Like a $20 smoothie versus a $14 smoothie, those are the same thing to me. Get the $14 smoothie. And no, I've not had an Air One smoothie, but I just can't imagine that there's anything in it that would condone a $20 price tag. That's insane. I mean, part of what makes Air One so special is that they do a lot of these celebrity collaborations that build up the hype. So I believe there's like a Hailey Bieber smoothie that was a collaboration. And there's also like a Kourtney Kardashian collaboration. And there's some other celebrity collaborations that make people want to try the smoothie, right? And then also like 
they have built their grocery store empire on this idea of being super organic, like super wellness. Like Erewhon is the type of grocery store that Gwyneth Paltrow would for sure shop at. You know what I mean? It's appealing to that kind of wellness person who has a ton of money. But it's weird because I was actually looking into the history of Erewhon because I was just interested in it because I feel like the first time I even heard of Erewhon was a couple years ago back when Emma Chamberlain was still making vlogs. I had clicked on one of her vlogs and she had mentioned getting these buffalo cauliflower things from Erewhon and I was like, what What the hell is Erewhon? And then ever since then, I've been seeing it mentioned casually every so often. But the first Erewhon was in 1966 and it was owned by this Japanese couple, the Kushis. And... The store was named after the book Erewhon, which is a 1872 satirical utopian novel by Samuel Butler. And the word itself is an anagram for nowhere. So the idea behind Erewhon was that they wanted it to be a food collective more than a grocery store. And it was supposed to sell these like organic grains, beans, and soy products that were imported from Japan. Eventually, they started getting into this whole like macrobiotic diet that was becoming popular in the U.S. And they were dedicated to furthering the teachings of George Osawa's World Government Association. And the World Government Association, this was founded in Japan. It's a belief that political change is achievable through food and its methods of consumption. So the Kushis were political activists like one of the reasons they were drawn to Osawa's teachings in the first place was because the husband, Michio Kushi, he was actually a soldier stationed in the south of Japan during World War II, and he witnessed the destruction of Hiroshima from the windows of a train. And that obviously really stayed with him, as it would for anyone who witnessed something so atrocious. So what the Kushis were interested in was getting to the root of what was causing human beings to be so aggressive in the first place. And the root for them was food. The grocery store wasn't even like their main thing. Um, the Kushis were also lecturing. They were writing books. And they founded the Kushi Institute in Chicago. So just over time, the supermarket couldn't maintain itself and it filed for bankruptcy in 1981 and eventually was purchased by a competing natural foods wholesaler. The Erewhon we know today is owned by Tony and Josephine Antochi and Tosi and while there's no explicit connections to Japanese school of thought in the type of produce that they sell they still do um, champion this idea of like natural organic food and ingredients that are there to heal your body. Though I will say that um, Paul Hawken, who used to be the president of the first Erewhon that was founded under the Kushis, he has said that the Erewhon I helped found has failed. We used to be affordable. The ingredients they still source are incredible, and I'm glad that's still in the DNA, but it's so expensive you can't feed the world that way. Paul is now a uh, climate activist writing books such as Regeneration and Project Drawdown, which I haven't read. So if there's anything crazy in those books, I did not endorse it. <laughs> I'm just sharing what happened to him since he left Erwan. But yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about how there is this idea that 
being able to access good quality ingredients and good food is something that only the rich can access. But the thing with this article that The Cut published is that despite how expensive Erewhon is, food is probably one of the easiest ways to um, cosplay as rich. So in this article, right, they interviewed a couple people who regularly shop at Erewhon but who make not that much money. So one of the girls, her name is Spencer, she's 23, and she makes roughly $40,000 annually as a freelance voiceover artist, content creator for a hummus company, and college essay tutor. And $40,000 in LA is really not much at all. But she loves Erewhon. Each week, she spends between $50 and $75, though sometimes she admits as much as $200 at Erewhon. <laughs> um, another girl, Luba Kaplonskaya, lives with her parents and works part-time jobs in marketing and at a law firm and as a nanny. She's 25 years old, reports an income of roughly $50,000, and also is obsessed with Erewhon. Though, admittedly, I think if you live at home with your parents and therefore you're not paying rent unless your parents make you pay rent, but if you are not paying any rent, then $50,000 is definitely enough to, I guess, spend on Erewhon because you could spend the equivalent of what you would spend on rent (laughs) at the groceries, (laughs) which is kind of a crazy concept. But her justification is, I love to take Erewhon when I'm flying because I freaking fly economy. I'm not private jetting anywhere. To just be in a comfortable sweatsuit or a Lulu fit and then have Erewhon, I feel like I'm worth a billion dollars. And she also said that she used to go to Erewhon way more when she was babysitting because she would get reimbursed for anything that she buys during her time with the kids. So then she would give one of them a sip of her smoothie and then charge the parents for it. And eventually they actually told her to stop shopping at Erewhon because it was too expensive. I think that's so are crazy people are so bold I feel like I have done a little bit of babysitting in my life but just if I'm doing any job I'm like so stressed out about wasting someone else's money even when they have a lot of it I don't know like this one time I modeled for this fashion brand um back in 2018 and they had found me on Instagram and I guess they liked my look or whatever but This is something that a lot of small fashion businesses will do. They'll scout for random people, like random girls on Instagram who don't professionally model and therefore are not signed by an agent and don't have like a particular expectation for how much they're supposed to be paid. They will find them. They will reach out to them, be like, oh, would you like to model for us? And of course, like when I got this text, I was like, oh my God, I I would kill. Like this is the most amazing opportunity of my life. And then when I actually went there, I got paid $400 and I got some free stuff, but the CEO of the brand or whatever, cause you know, it was a small fashion brand. So it was only like a team of five people, but the main girl, she asked me if I wanted anything for lunch and I hadn't eaten lunch, but I was like, oh no, I'm okay. Because I didn't want her to spend money buying me lunch. And I also didn't want to spend money buying myself lunch. So I just didn't have lunch that day. (laughs) And now looking back, that brand was making so much money. Like so much. It was a major small brand. And $400 for the number of e-com photos they took of me is not enough. Like that is such a small amount. And it's laughable that 
I don't think any of my signed model friends would agree to something like that. And they shouldn't agree to something like that because that's ridiculous. It's kind of similar to, okay, so this brand I will actually put on blast because I don't like them. So Okay, so actually upon further thought, I don't want to receive a cease and desist. So I am um, not going to tell you guys what the brand is. I'm so sorry, but legally I just don't want to get in trouble. I had a couple friends model for them and they only paid my friends like $200 and then put them on billboards to use for advertising. And it was like a full day of work, like a full day. And that company makes millions of dollars every year. Whoever is the owner of that company, she is making bank. And she was making bank at the time when I knew all this was happening. So if you are a girl on Instagram and some brand, your dream brand, like slides into your DMs to ask you to model for them, always proceed with caution because they will probably offer you way less than what a normal model would be paid for. Okay, so what was I going on with that? Oh yeah, this Erewhon article. So there's this one um, woman, Andrea Hernandez. She's the founder of the online food and beverage community, Snackshot, and she describes Erewhon as affordable affluence, a way for regular people to position themselves adjacent to the upper class. And I think that's definitely true. Like, as I said, I think food is one of the easier ways to cosplay wealthy because overall, like the cost of a high quality smoothie is still gonna be way less than the cost of a first class ticket. Also, just like as a testament to this theory, last month, um, late April, this TikToker, her name was Pauline, she shared a video of her and her friend purchasing sandwiches and smoothies at Erewhon and saying that she spent $80 in EBT <laughs> at the store. And I mean, some of the comments, they were like, oh my God, I didn't know they um, accept EBT at Erewhon and that's so iconic. But then other people, of course, were like, why are you spending EBT at Erewhon, you poor person? Also, for any non-Americans who are not sure what EBT is, EBT is um, an electronic benefits transfer card. And it's a resource that is offered to lower class, working class families and people. And it's basically just a card with a certain amount of money on it that you can use for food. It's like food stamps. Anyways, Pauline made a follow-up video responding to the haters, and she said that um, she is a low-income student at the University of Southern California. She's received EBT for two years, and she made one trip to Erewhon. Like, this is not something that she normally does. And she also said these comments frame it so that poor people who need EBT owe it to other people to basically be starving all the time and to only use it to keep themselves from dying, which I think is very true. I think there's like this idea that only wealthy people deserve to have anything nice and if you're poor you don't deserve anything i remember there was like a tumblr post that went around years ago that i saw and it was this person who was complaining about how one thing that they will do despite being lower class is that they once a week will buy an avocado toast that's like ten dollars and that is because like they need a reason to enjoy life and in a way like these kind of luxury foods 
offer that because it's not so out of reach that it's completely unaffordable. Like a lot of people can afford one smoothie at Erwan. You know, it's it's just a difference between being able to afford something once in a while and being able to afford something very regularly. Yeah, I think it's just kind of unsettling going back to the original mission of Erwan, right? Like what Paul said, the whole mission behind it was to heal the population. It was supposed to be a political stance. And when I was looking into the original Erwan, the prices were still like on the higher side. It wasn't astronomical, but it was still like somewhat high because they had to incentivize farmers to abide by certain organic standards. And the way they did that was by offering to pay them more for the organic groceries. So obviously they had to increase the prices of groceries they were selling in store to like counterbalance all that. But the whole point was to heal humanity through food. And you can't really heal humanity through food if only a portion of humanity can afford it. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about while we're on the topic of being able to afford stuff is the writer's strike. And I mostly want to talk about it because it's important to me as someone who works in entertainment and also as someone who consumes entertainment. And it's also just been everywhere in the news lately. And I think it is a valuable conversation to have, even if we just tap into a little bit about it. Because if you are unaware about what's happening in the writer's strike or, you know, if you're not an American citizen, et cetera, it's... A strike that was called by the WGA, which stands for Writers Guild of America, and they represent 11,000 writers in Hollywood. And mostly what they were asking for studios was for higher compensation for writers, especially because television has grown so much in the past decade and companies have invested like billions of dollars into streaming services. So you would think that writers would be compensated more for this industry change, but actually their compensation has been pretty stagnant. Streaming services have also kind of eradicated the whole thing of residual pay, which is something that affects actors as well and something that I became aware of when Sydney Sweeney was put under blast for comments she made. Okay, I'm honestly a Sydney Sweeney defender. I think people have been really unfair to her, but she made comments about how she like was doing all this like sponsorship work or whatever because she needed to pay her bills and a lot of people reacted negatively towards what she was saying because she did buy a three million dollar house and they were like well maybe you shouldn't have bought a three million dollar house if you didn't think you could pay for it which is fair but also she was complaining about actors no longer making residuals and i think that's a very fair thing to complain about because for a long time if you were working in TV, especially like that's how you made a lot of your money was because you'd be paid a certain amount for your work, but then you would be paid every single time the network played or ran a rerun of your show. But now because streaming services are just buying shows outright, actors and also writers are not getting paid any residuals. Sure, for a lot of actors, like especially like big actors, they get multi-million dollar contract so you know like a residuals whatever but a lot of middle class writers have complained that this used to be a major source of their income and now it's gone also the wga is fighting for abuses of mini rooms so if you don't know what a mini room is i recently learned what it was because uh neil gaiman wrote about it on his tumblr which i didn't even realize he still used but it came up on my um Tumblr dashboard. So a mini room is essentially a way of television writing that's becoming super, super common. 
the studio will basically hire a small group of writers and employ them for only a couple weeks, sometimes a couple months, but not for very long. And during this time, during this contract, these junior writers have to come up with characters, plots, outlines for episodes for a show. And then once that time is over, they are essentially let go, except for the showrunner, who then writes the entire series themselves based on these outlines, or they'll work with a couple other senior writers. But usually these junior writers do not get to stay in the production of this show. So the reason that studios are advocating for this kind of format is because it costs less than to hire writers for an entire season of a show. And this is a negative thing because mini rooms essentially shut out writers from any learning experiences or from jumpstarting their career or from getting any kind of foothold in the industry. They're employed for such a short amount of time. They're not on set. They're not in the production beyond like three weeks of the initial writing and so they're not getting any kind of like real industry experience out of this and you know George R. R. Martin wrote on his blog about why he hates mini rooms and why he's in support of the WGA but one thing that he wrote that makes so much sense is if the story editors of 2023 are not allowed to get any production experience where did the studios think the showrunners of 2033 are going to come from like if no junior writers are able to gain the industry experience they need to eventually become showrunners than what's going to happen to the state of TV. So in response to all of this, the WGA is proposing a rule that writers have to be employed for the entire show and a rule tying the number of writers in the room to the number of episodes you have per season. Another thing I was looking into regarding this strike though is how reality TV is being affected, like the reality TV industry, because this actually came up in an interview I did with Avery Troubleman, which I'm really excited to share with you guys later this month, spoiler alert. But when I was talking to Avery, she was telling me about how reality TV was really taking off in the last writer's strike, which happened in 2007. And that strike lasted for about three months, which is a long time. Not the longest a strike has gone for. The longest a strike has gone for um, was 153 days back in 1988, I believe. So it is possible that the strike could go for a long time. But yeah, she told me about how there was a rise in unscripted television, so reality TV, in the last writer's strike because studios had to figure out what to do when there were no writers. So I came across this article in the LA Times called In Past Strikes, Networks Turn to Reality TV. Now it's more complicated. And in it, they talk about how reality TV writers tend to face like even lower wages than um, for scripted TV. And in general, like recently, workers in reality TV have grown increasingly vocal about the hours they're forced to work at, low pay, and poor benefits. So um, this one reality producer, Tony Ann Lagana. She has spent over a decade in the business working on shows like American Idol and Dancing with the Stars, but two years ago, she hit a breaking point after working 18-hour days for months during the thick of the pandemic. So now she is a supervising producer on Fox's The Masked Singer, but she believes that people who work in reality TV deserve way more respect and improved working conditions. She said, we are crafting the entire storyline before it gets to the editor. We are writing whether it's on Avid or paper. 
So writer-producers for reality TV and unscripted shows, they have attempted to organize, but they do face a lot of resistance from production companies. For example, in 2015, the owners of Jane Street, which is a New York production company, they sent an email urging their writer-producers not to vote for the union. And that letter was widely circulated and published by Deadline. And then in 2017, a bunch of reality TV writers, like hundreds of them, staged a walkout in New York, but that was dismissed by Left Field Pictures, a prolific producer of unscripted content as, quote, a feeble attempt to leverage publicity. I just feel like there's so many abuses that happen in the reality TV industry. Like there was this whole Love is Blind article that was um, published on Insider where they were saying that the contestants were literally having traumatic breakdowns because of all the abuses that were happening on set. For example, there were a bunch of cast members who sometimes fell asleep during dates because they were so exhausted. They were filming for 10 days straight on a windowless set, so contestants only saw sunlight when they used a bathroom in a trailer outside. Three cast members told Insider they had panic attacks while filming, and one said the producer pressured her to stay on the show even after she confided she was having suicidal thoughts. And then last June, the season two cast member, Jeremy Hartwell, he actually sued Netflix and the show's production company, Kinetic Content, accusing them of labor law violations and of subjecting contestants to unsafe and inhumane working conditions by depriving them of sleep, not supplying enough food and water, and providing an excess of alcohol. Several contestants said they were left depressed and sought therapy after filming. One even quit her job because she felt unstable to return to her old life. And Love is Blind is not the only one. Like, Love Island infamously had three suicides, like, not on the show itself, but, like, three contestants from the show committed suicide. And I think the energy with a lot of these reality TV shows, especially the ones that are focused on dating and romance, is just incredibly cursed because people shouldn't feel watched 24-7. Oh, my God, this all goes back to the whole vigilantism, surveillance state I don't think people should be surveyed every minute of their day. Like, I think it just does something to you and to your brain. And I mean, people who've competed on these shows have said that it is like very disorienting to go back to the real world after spending so much time on a set and being told like what to do and then also being watched constantly. Like, it's a lot. And I feel like a lot of people who join these shows, they don't necessarily realize what the experience is going to be like until they're there. And also just with the way that a lot of producers try to force drama and make people say really mean things to each other or make certain people like ostracize other people. It feels like a very toxic environment. And I'm not surprised that every year there's articles about people, contestants who are on some so-and-so show coming out and being like, that was a terrible experience. But, you know, the angle that it actually is terrible for writers, too, that's something that I didn't even recognize or realize what was happening. And it seems like the entire industry is just bad, just straight up bad, which is upsetting because it's also growing so rapidly and it's become so popular and has made so much money, especially for streaming networks like Netflix and Hulu, that I don't think it's ever going to die off. And I think at this rate, they just really need a union. Like everything just needs a union. Unions are good, actually. <laughs>
which, oh my God, not to like bring it back to Erwan, but I do have to share this little tidbit that I read in this article because I was shocked because I, I did generally kind of agree with what the Kushis were trying to say. But one of the reasons why Erwan, their first Erwan, died off was because the company's staff um, was criticizing the company's lackadaisical macrobiotic-centered management and even moved to form a union in 1979. And in her memoir, Aveline Cushy, who's the wife, she cites the union as one of the contributing factors to their grocery store's downfall, remarking that unionization was incongruous with macrobiotics' underlying teachings of gratitude and respect. She writes, the split was too deep. We were saddened. (laughs) So on that note, I think we're going to close out the episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week. Um, If you want to keep up with Highbrow, you can follow the Highbrow Instagram account. It's called highbrow.pod. Or you can follow me on Instagram, which is just Gremlita. I'm really on every service, so you can find me under that handle pretty much anywhere. I also post announcements for any call-in submissions I'm looking for on my Instagram stories. So if you've been dying to give your input on one of the topics that I've been talking about, then that's where you'll hear about any future postings for it. Okay, thank you all so much for listening. I'll see you next week, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Bye! Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit